everyone. My name is Sabrina Subinfu, and I'm a decade-old CCL volunteer and have the honor of introducing Dr. Danny Richter. Danny started out as a CCL volunteer while in graduate school and table with our founder, Marshall Saunders, when there were only a few CCL groups nationally. After earning his PhD from the Scripps Institute of California, San Diego in 2013, Danny joined Citizens Climate Lobby staff and became our VP of Government Affairs, even though his PhD thesis, Effects of Trace Metals and Diatom Export Products from the Euphotic Zone, has as little to do with Congress as can be imagined. However, it was clear to our founder, Marshall Saunders, that we needed Danny's sharp analytical mind to head our government affairs, overseeing CCL's research initiatives, developing strategies for working with Congress, and supporting volunteer efforts through three introductions of the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. Danny made me realize that the scientific mind was just what Congress needed to clarify processes and policy. After departing CCL last year, Danny joined the Pricing Carbon Initiative, PCI, where he now serves as co-director. PCI convenes forums for ongoing discussions between a broad network of stakeholders on climate policy, politics, and strategies with participants representing environmental, business, labor, social justice, religious, and other issue-oriented advocacy organization, as well as both conservatives and progressive think tanks. In addition, Danny has also started his own consulting firm, Richter Capital Hill Strategies, focusing on helping his clients turn credible research into bipartisan policy solutions. In his free time, Danny enjoys coaching his kids' soccer team, studying foreign languages, and baking bread. Please welcome Dr. Danny Richter. Hi, CCL. It's so good to be on Zoom with you again. It's been so long. Uh, I know time is precious at a CCL conference, so I'm going to dive right in here. Uh, today, I'll talk a little bit about what I've been up to over the past year. Thank you, Sabrina, for that kind introduction. Uh, I'll talk about carbon pricing in the United States, and I'll talk a bit about networking. Not long after I left CCL, I started working part-time with the Pricing Carbon Initiative, or PCI, where I still work part-time and where I serve as co-director with its founder, Tom Stokes. A PCI would connect people who otherwise would not speak to each other. Key to our success is the strategic deployment of the Chatham House Rule. Now, PCI was the first place where I encountered the Chatham House Rule, so I'll take a moment to explain it. The Chatham House Rule was invented by a London-based think tank called, wait for it, Chatham House. Uh, the rule states that, quote, when a meeting or part thereof is held under the Chatham House Rule, participants are free to use the information received, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speakers nor that of any other participant may be revealed. So in other words, Chatham House Rule meeting is a meeting where the people involved are confidential, but not the contents of the meeting. Though I only started working for PCI in October of last year, I had been a member of the PCI Steering Committee since about 2014. Before that, Marshall Saunders, Steve Volk, and Mark Reynolds interacted with PCI, and they referred to Tom and his colleagues as the smart guys. Tom and the rest of the smart guys, in fact, played a key role in turning Marshall onto carbon pricing in the first place. In any case, with my long engagement with the PCI network, I've seen firsthand how the Chatham House rule can be skillfully deployed to get to a deeper level of conversation and to build trust. At CCL, I always look forward to PCI meetings, both because of the candid takes I got on current politics, but also because it was a very efficient use of my time. At an in-person PCI meeting, I get to talk to five or 10 other people I wanted to meet with anyway, 
as well as five to 10 people I didn't even know I wanted to meet with. Many of our participants these days remark to us how ours is the only venue where they encounter differing organizational perspectives, especially perspectives from the other side of the aisle. Our in-person and virtual dialogues offer political practitioners the opportunity to engage real people in helpful and even enlightening discussions, a really a true exchange of ideas and perspectives. In this era of gridlock and increasing partisanship, we are one of the few organizations facilitating new connections for back-channel diplomacy between the parties on one of the most pressing issues of our time, climate change. PCI doesn't take policy positions beyond, let's put a price on carbon. So let's talk about pricing carbon. To be honest, it's not especially fun to be an advocate for carbon pricing right now. Uh, the media, most politicians, and just about every other environmental group seems just kind of tired about carbon pricing, uh, as do, much to our mutual chagrin, I imagine, uh, funders. Uh, but let's let's go beyond this because it makes me a little bit crazy. There's an element of the emperor's new clothes going on with all this because in many ways, carbon pricing is doing extraordinarily well. 23% of global emissions are covered by a carbon price. 16 US states have a carbon price. The Inflation Reduction Act included a methane fee. There is robust bipartisan discussion going on in the Senate about something very similar to a border carbon adjustment an element which has been a part of every single carbon price introduced in the United States in the past decade. In fact, on just Thursday, Republican Senators Cassidy and Graham introduced the Foreign Pollution Fee Act, which is a border carbon tariff. The EU carbon, carbon border adjustment mechanism came into force last month, and the EU is the largest foreign market available to U.S. exporters. Of all the 34 developed economies in the world, the U.S. is the only one without a carbon price. Even several developing economies have carbon prices, and the consensus opinion of September's first ever African Climate Summit was that there should be a global carbon tax. So Tom and I sometimes feel a little bit crazy. Carbon pricing has enough going for it that The Economist magazine last month published an article titled, How Carbon Prices Are Taking Over the World. And yet we're getting feedback that the very name of our organization is problematic. Despite this, we are staying the course. We're not changing our name. And we continue to have really compelling public and Chatham House rule discussions focused on carbon pricing. So what is a carbon pricing advocate to do here in the last developed economy to heed the advice of scientists and economists? Well, of course, I don't know the right answer to that, but here's something I think might help. Make prices on pollution more visible and more normal. Do this and maybe American politicians won't find them so scary. To do this, let's take a wider view and look at the very words carbon pricing. Typically, this is understood to mean either a carbon tax or a cap and trade system for carbon dioxide emissions. Chemically, this is myopic. Methane, CFCs, HFCs, and particulate emissions, sometimes called black carbon, all warm the climate and they all have carbon in them as well. But virtually no one thinks of these climate forcers in the same context as a carbon price. We tend to think of carbon prices only on one side of the ledger, in addition to that, as a price set by government action on carbon emitted to the atmosphere. But there are already carbon prices out there for the other side of the ledger, for carbon dioxide removed from the atmosphere. As I think over the decade of conversations I've been a part of with PCI, our discussions have never been limited to just federal cap and trade or carbon tax policies. 
we've discussed the social cost of carbon. We've discussed carbon removal, climate risk assessment, the methane fee, the Montreal Protocol, state carbon prices, and loss and damage. All of these have been of interest to our diverse array of participants at the local, state, federal, and international levels of government. So let's bring it back to you, to CCL. My hypothesis is correct. And what we need to unstick American politics is to make the concept of pricing pollution more humdrum and less scary for American politicians, then we need to start drawing parallels. We need to raise the profile of other ways of pricing other carbon-based molecules, point out how well they work, how uncontroversial they are, and so make the idea of pricing pollution not so scary. For instance, no one actually pays the social cost of carbon, yet it plays a role in shifting decisions. It plays a big role in shifting decisions. We're talking about purchasing and procurement for vehicles from the United States military or the US Postal Service, you can quickly get a sense for how a higher social cost of carbon can be very impactful very quickly. When you think about the essence of what's going on here, we as carbon pricing advocates really like the idea of using prices to align decision-making with the very real risks faced by the climate. We like doing that with carbon dioxide, but I'll bet that you also really like the idea of doing it with other greenhouse gases too. I'll even bet that you don't really care if someone actually pays the price, as with the social cost of carbon, so long as they change their behavior and fewer greenhouse gas emissions end up in the atmosphere. So that's carbon pricing. Now I wanna talk about networks and networking. Why? Because what you do at your tabling events, at your group meetings, when you reach out to grass tops in your district and state, and certainly in your lobby meetings, all of that is networking. You are building relationships, and those relationships are what empower you to create the political will for a livable world. One of the ways I've approached my work at PCI is to reframe the very way I think about the groups that we serve. In addition to organizing them by what they do, I've also started talking about how they do it. So in addition to thinking of our network as environmental, business, labor, social justice, religious, and other issue-oriented advocacy organizations, as well as both conservative and progressive think tanks, I think of them as Beltway insiders, university and think tank researchers, state-focused operatives, funding organizations, grassroots engagers, and the eco-right. Reframing our participants in this way in terms of how they go about accomplishing their goals instead of by what their goals are helps me to zero in more quickly on what exactly it is, the value that they are getting out of the network we facilitate. For instance, Beltway insiders really value the access we provide to researchers. Researchers really value hearing the cutting edge of politics because it helps them create research that is going to be read and used. Keeping this in mind enables me to more directly connect our participants with what they need. And to be clear, I'm not advocating for replacing what thinking with how thinking. I'm advocating for using both. When you focus on both, you see connections you otherwise wouldn't. When I focus on how groups go about their work, I can see that this faith-based organization over here and that climate organization over there both have robust grassroots and they share techniques for organizing them. Maybe they should be connected. I would never make that connection if I thought about it only in terms of what goals they're trying to achieve. These connections that you can make when you think about both the what and the how are very exciting connections. 
These are connections that facilitate interdisciplinary collaborations, which ultimately helps with innovations, social innovations, network innovations, policy innovations. In my role at PCI, it also helps me better serve our network. Now, as I mentioned, I've only been at PCI half part-time. With the other part of my time, I've, I, as Sabrina mentioned, I just started my own consulting business, Richter Capital Hill Strategies. Uh, and what I do is I focus on helping my clients connect with Congress, driving policy with data. When I look at the DC landscape, my biggest competitive advantage is that I'm fluent in the language of both scientists and policymakers. I earned a PhD studying climate, but I've also helped policymakers pass bills through the US Congress. It should be noted with a lot of help from many of the people on this call, but really there are only so many people who can claim to have done both of those things. As I launch this new adventure, I find myself having lots of lunches, coffees, and attending a lot of after-work events where there are ample opportunities for networking. There is no one right way to network. Such an unstructured activity and what any one person wants out of it is going to vary depending on their personality and where they are in their career. It is like the network of gluten in this loaf of bread. It's going to vary with the type of flour I used, the time it fermented, and how many turns I gave it but it's all delicious. Perhaps because of this wide array of approaches and poorly defined goals, I've certainly found it hard to find compelling advice on how to do it well. After 10 years of building relationships professionally and wishing I had someone to give me useful advice when I started, I'm gonna share some ob observations with you that I hope will be helpful to you as you're betting the ranch on relationships. The key takeaways for you are going to be one, you need a different strategy for one-on-one -on -one meetings and meetings in a group. And two, being imperfect and showing it can actually lead to a stronger relationship. On the first point, coffees and lunches for me are usually what one-on-one -on -one meetings. The after-work soirees, I'll call them, are often crowded, noisy, and there's usually alcohol involved. People are tired after the workday, and while they're still on the clock, they don't really wanna talk about work. For coffee, I tend to talk about work stuff the entire meeting. I'm focused, I have goals, I write down follow-ups after confirming them with the person I'm meeting with practicing active listening. For a soiree, work comes up, but the discussion is general and unfocused. If there's something serious I need to talk about, I ask to meet with them for a coffee another day. In the context of the crowds, the noise, and the fatigue, it is just not the time. So I make time later when I can focus and listen properly. In terms of being imperfect, I found that I build more useful, deeper, and longer lasting relationships when I am honest and transparent about where my weaknesses lie and what my needs are. Here, my experience with learning a language provides perhaps the best analogy. Now, I love language. I love learning languages. Studying climate, engaging in American politics, these things I tolerate. Language inspires me. I work on this literally every single day. And the reason I find inspiration in language is because it opens whole new worlds of connections and you don't necessarily need to do it all that well to have fun with it. Believe it or not, I've had successful interactions in seven languages, but I would only claim to be fluent in two. In some of them, I am downright terrible, but I have found that when I engage with the native speaker, especially if my pronunciation is good, they respond out of all proportion to the quality of my speech. Because I have tried and I'm interested in something that is important to them, they are more interested in me, they're more interested in helping me 
they're more forthcoming, and they're even more patient with my fumbling attempts to speak their language. It's the same thing when you're building a network. When you put yourself out there and ask for help, you give the person you're speaking with a chance to show their value, to get to demonstrate their usefulness. And so to wrap things up, carbon pricing is actually doing quite well at the moment, certainly globally, but even in the United States, there are many policies moving forward that applying the concept of putting a price on pollution to change decision-making. Highlighting some of these other more humdrum and less scary ways of pricing pollution may make it easier to get something passed at the federal level. I also talked about connections. I talked about the value of considering not just what an organization or a person in your group does, but how they do it. Asking both questions can lead to new ways of thinking about the people in your network and can lead to social innovations that enable you to get more out of your network. Finally, while there are many right ways to network, I shared with you a couple of frameworks and tactics that work for me and my personality. Most important of these is being willing to make mistakes, ask for help, and welcome the help that comes. We feel better in relationships where we feel valued, and in admitting our weaknesses, we give the opportunity to others to share their value with us. So again, it's been such a thrill to be back with you all, uh, and I really hope you found something useful in my remarks. Thank you. And it is so great to see you, and it sounds like you're still a pretty good soccer coach. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yes. And if you could all just bear with me for a minute, I need to thank a couple of people. First of all, Danny, and for everybody who presented both the breakouts and the entire sessions, thank you so much. For the people that did the incredible work behind the scenes for months of advantage to this, and since early this morning and all day tomorrow, thank you for that. I hope all of you can join us again tomorrow. There's some great sessions. And for those of you who've been lobbying this week, you know, we've been able to create some, a lot of co-sponsors on these lobby weeks before, so let's go make something big happen. Last thing I want to mention is Giving Tuesday kicks off our year-end do donations. And I've met with foundations multiple times that when I tell them that 75% of, of our donations come from grassroots donations, it blows their mind. It's like nothing else they've ever heard of. What I do personally is on Giving Tuesday itself, I get up before I read the paper, before I get a cup of coffee, I go to our website and I make my donation. So for those of you who already donated, for those of you who donated between Giving Tuesday and the end of the year, Thank you all so, so much, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.